Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. We are back again. Okay, sir. Kill it off for me. <laughs> A little bit slow there. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to tonight's podcast edition of the Miller Frost Show. I am your host and America's most beloved self-loving homosexual, Miller Frost. Here, as always, with White Boy Malcolm X. And before I forget, we do have a new email. If you want to email me and tell me how self-loathing you think I really am, you can reach me at miller at millerfrostonline.com. So looking forward to reading those, as I always do. We do have a few follow-up stories for you. Um, I did intend to take a break from Ginger Kennedy, but unfortunately, I have no such luck. I did not want anyone to think of me as what I call a Kennedy masturbator. And and yes, white boy Malcolm X, I already see the look. A Kennedy masturbator. <laughs> it's like you have Kennedy masturbators, you have like Obama masturbators, you have, you have Trump masturbators for that matter. You have just people who are just fanatically in love with these, uh, these celebrities or these politicians. And the Kennedys have a, a special aura about them, especially in a place like Massachusetts. So I wanted to avoid Ginger Kennedy, but unfortunately I got him right here in my pile. So we're just going to have to live with that. Another one I tried to avoid was the alleged chicken hawk and mayor of the lovely little town of Holyoke, Massachusetts, Alex Morse. But again, no such luck there. So we do have a chicken hawk story for you. Kind of, sort of. Oh, speaking of which, God, I think there must be some informal competition to, as to who can bang the most college boys. Because like in one corner, you've got... Alex Morris, the alleged chicken hawk and mayor of Holyoke, Massachusetts, which is a lovely little town, by the way. And in the other corner, you have Becky Falwell, first the pool boy. And now she's got, she apparently also did some, some other college stud. White boy Malcolm X, did you know that the name of this guy, this pool boy that she picked up at some hotel in, in Florida Giancarlo Granda. So she got herself some strapping Italian stud. <laughs> what? This story is completely, I was going to save this for last, but I'm going to do this first off because I need to address this with our summit mistress, who if you listen to the first podcast, we gave a very special shout out to. She is our biggest fan. She has always been there for us. I've known her for too many years at this point. We both have, have we not? But I wanted to read this story because this is <laughs> this is for her. Women, and, and I also want to make sure that she's not doing this, but if she's not, maybe I'm planting a seed and she suddenly will. Women are posing topless on Colorado mountaintops in exploding new trend, <laughs> freeing and exhilarating. Women in Colorado are reportedly bearing it all for half-naked photo ops after hiking to mountaintops in a social media fad some say has helped their confidence soar. Though topless photos of boldly bare backs at soaring summits is not a new fad, 
The Denver Post reports that the trend has been exploding in popularity among female hikers in the Centennial State this summer. It feels fun, exciting, and maybe a little risky to be naked in nature. Carry, and that's carry with an I. Armstrong of the Boulder Hiker Chicks, a hiking club for women, explained, When you have worked hard for your hike, or even if you haven't, it is fun to do something a little silly and liberating to celebrate. According to Armstrong, another now defunct women's hiking How do you become a defunct women's hiking group? Mean Girls. White Boy Malcolm X says, bunch of mean girls. So they all just went away. Now defunct women's hiking group got the trend going in 2015. Some participants say that the photo ops mark much more than a lighthearted moment. Kelly, and that's Kelly with an I, Schultz told the Post that her topless photo atop the 14,000-foot Tories Peak felt big and important after the 36-year-old left a relationship that battered her self-worth. With every step, I felt empowered, like I was taking control of my life, she explained, like I could and would be me again. I looked at my friends and said, I'm taking one of those topless pics and I'm never giving up the things I love again. Then I snapped a couple of pics and I absolutely loved them. So there you go, Summit Mistress and all you other folks in Colorado. The key to self-empowerment is to take a picture of your titties in the Rockies. Oh, and I have a lot more millennial stories because you know that's who's doing that. You know, we talked about Leah Ramini last, was it last week, week before? I I can't remember. They they, they all kind of blur. But Leah Ramini... Every time I see her in the newspaper, she's going after Tom Cruise. And I think I asked at the time if he like did her dirty and she's really pissed off and she's just going after him. But Rose McGowan, she's another one. And But she hates just the Democrats. She's not targeting just one Democrat. She hates them all. Rose McGowan unleashes fury against Joe Biden Democrats. You are monsters, frauds. Rose McGowan blasted Joe Biden and the Democratic Party on the final day of the Democratic National Convention in a series of tweets in which she dubbed them all frauds. Yes, I know this story's old. I just found it. The actress and activist, 46, who has stood behind Biden assault accuser Tara Reid and blasted Hollywood stars for their support of the Democratic presidential nominee, made her distaste for Biden loud and clear as she ripped his speech in which he described America as a cloak of darkness under Trump. Carolyn, go into the light. Give people light. These are words for our time. The current president has cloaked America in darkness for much too long. Too much anger, too much fear, too much division, Biden said on Thursday night. And this is from McGowan. You are the season of darkness at Joe Biden at DNC. You are monsters. You are frauds. You are the lie, McGowan reacted on the social media platform. She went on to question the Democratic Party's ability to create change and provide support for citizens facing racial inequality, economic issues, and police brutality. What have the Democrats done to solve anything? Help the poor? No. Help brown and black people? No. Stop police brutality? No. Help single mothers? No. Help children? No. You have achieved nothing. Nothing. Why did people vote for Trump? Because of you, mother effers, she wrote. And I, it was not just effers. God, she, she's angry, but I like her. I have to admit it. I, I, I don't, she and I probably do not agree on a damn thing politically. But hey, she's calling the spade a spade. I, I have to give her credit, credit for that. I mean, I, look, face it. I mean, all the big perverts are in the Democratic Party. I mean, except, except for Becky Falwell. You know, blowing blowing college boys. I mean, you got what like Clinton, you have Weinstein, you got any anyone with the last name of Kennedy, Chris Dodd and the waitress sandwich with I which I think was with a Kennedy. Yeah, that's the corrupt ruling class for you. So I just have to say, I like I like what she has to say. I I like the fact that she's calling them out like that. So not a lot of people have that uh confidence to do that. I'm a Mac guy and one of the things I like is the Apple news feed, and I like being able to kind of curate, as they say, curate my news feed to have articles and things that I'm interested in and block those websites that just don't provide any value. CNN is a great example of that. Like I've said numerous times, they're unreadable and unwatchable. And so what I've been doing lately is every time I come across one of these 
media companies that has one of these articles about what happens if Trump refuses to leave the White House. I just I just block the news channel. They're not serious journalists. If that's what they want to do is pontificate about Trump barricading himself in the Oval Office and refusing to leave. And so so I don't know how this one got by me, uh, but it's a Reuters story edited by the Daily Beast. Al Gore, if Trump refuses to concede, the military would run him out. There There have got to be like a thousand stories at this point. Same theme. Trump refuses to leave. What do we do? Because I guess they just assume assume that poor, creepy Uncle Joe is going to win from the basement. Fear not, the XV says. Even if Trump doesn't accept an electoral loss to Biden, he'd have no choice but to leave the White House. When Al Gore won the popular vote by more than a half a million, but lost the Supreme Court vote by five to four, he gracefully conceded that... (laughs) No, he did not. I mean... Compared to Hillary in 2016, yes. But I was alive and well back in 2000. There was nothing graceful about his concession. Anyway, he gracefully conceded the 2000 election to George W. Bush, something Donald Trump would apparently be loath to do this time around, even if Joe Biden beats him decisively in both the Electoral College and raw ballots on November 3rd. Gore insisted Tuesday in an online interview with Reuters editor-in-chief Stephen J. Adler that he's had no second thoughts about his concession speech two decades ago because there was zero alternative. When you say there were potentially some other moves, he told Adler, I researched them, and it turns out there's no immediate step between final Supreme Court decision and violent revolution. Well, we've got that now, don't we? But what if Trump declares the results illegitimate, Adler asked. They get the vapors, those liberals, they get, what if he doesn't leave? and demands to stay on as president? Or does Gore believe the former reality star would concede defeat in the same spirit that he did? I don't know Bill Clinton's former vice president. These days, a fit-looking, silver-haired, 72-year-old mega-millionaire. And do you know how he got his mega-millions, folks? You know, another member of the ruling class. He got rich, terrifying children about global warming or climate change, or whatever the hell you want to call it today. The, the the pictures of the pandas on the melting ice. That's how we got rich. Scaring children half to death. And that's why we have half the nuttiness we have today is because of Al Gore. Anyway, picking back up. I don't know. Bill Clinton's former vice president, these days a fit-looking, silver-haired, 72-year-old mega-millionaire, answered with a mirthless chuckle. But it's important to say that it's not really up to him. I hear people saying, well, would he accept the decision? Well, it doesn't matter because it's not up to him. Because at noon on January 20th, if a new president is elected, the police force, the Secret Service, the military, all of the executive branch officers will respond to the command and the direction of the new president, who I think her name is Kamala Harris. Gore added, I'm hoping that will be a decisive victory, but I don't want to get ahead of myself because like a lot of people in my political party, I felt kind of optimistic four years ago, and we all saw what happened. Yes, Trump and the Russians stole the election from Hillary. So I don't think anyone who is a partisan for Biden or Harris are going to be relaxing or coasting just because they have a lead in the polls right now. He is such an insufferable bore. He, I mean, he is such a bore. His wife left him after decades of marriage. And you get to a certain point in a marriage where you're like, I'm just going to ride this out and hope they die before they, I do. So, God, I can't take him. This is from Business Insider. Oh, now we're getting into, see, I didn't divide the pile up, White Boy Malcolm X, so you're just going to get what you're going to get again. Because that, that did actually work well last week. This is from Business Insider. Viral video shows white protesters confronting diners during a Black Lives Matter protest. People protesting the police shooting of Kenosha, Wisconsin man Jacob Blake were caught in video berating two women sitting outdoors at a restaurant in a gentrified neighborhood in Washington, D.C. on Monday night. And if you don't know what a gentrified neighborhood is, that's generally kind of one of those falling apart neighborhoods where white people come in and buy up the houses, spend a lot of money renovating them, and turn it into a decent neighborhood. So that's what gentrified is. But you can also define it as where white people come in 
and throw out all the black people, which is the accusation we've had in a couple of different news stories. White people come in, throw all the black people out, and then profit from it. Somehow, they get away with it. The episode, documented by the Washington Post's Frederick Kunkel, showed a group of white protesters <laughs> yelling at a woman. Is there anyone who's black in Black Lives Matter? Because all I hear about is just these, these white protesters. These guys that got shot in Kenosha and... You know, it's not funny they got shot, but they're all white people. It's all a bunch of white hippies that got shot up there. So now we got more white people yelling at other people. Anyway, picking back up, the episode documenting by the Washington Post's Frederick Kunkel showed a group of white protesters yelling at a woman at a restaurant patio in Adams Morgan who declined to raise her fist in solidarity with them. Across television and social media, critics from both the left and right lamented the incident. Pretty sure everyone has said all there is to say about this, tweeted Joel D. Anderson, a columnist at Slate. But I can't help but think we'd be better off if white people did some version of this at home to their racist mothers and uncles and old college buddies. You think they don't, Joel? They they, they probably got thrown out of the house. That's why they were out loitering around in the gentrified neighborhood of Washington, because their parents were like, okay, enough. Stop calling us a racist for one night. Go out. Here's here's 20 bucks. Go do something. Go, Go riot or something. White people continuing to do the most and least simultaneously, added Mark Lamont Hill, a professor at Temple University. This is why white people taking over our movements is actually bad, said activist Manjula Ray. They never know when to take a effing seat. <sighs> Shrill white liberals. At it again, folks. So just be careful. Do not go out and gentrify neighborhoods. You're going to get the, the black people. They're out yelling in Seattle, but now the white people are out in D.C. yelling in the gentrified neighborhoods. Here's another one. Black Lives Matter co-founder calls for Hollywood strike over Jacob Blake. And if you Google angry lesbian, this woman, Patrice Kohler's, her face pops right up, I promise you. Following Tuesday night's historic sports strike, which started with the Milwaukee Bucks boycotting their playoff game in solidarity with police shooting victim Jacob Blake. Black Lives Matter co-founder Patrice Coolers is making a call for similar action in Hollywood. I think it's time for talent, writers, executives, the Guild, and SAG to show up for Black Lives as well, Coolers, a writer on Freeform's Good Trouble, tells The Hollywood Reporter. Join this strike. Now is the time. And our movement is really looking to unions to step in in a particular way and say, we're not going to hold back on allowing for the exploitation and degradation of black communities to continue under our watch. I think Hollywood can really show up in this moment. She's a fool. No, seriously, White Boy Macamex, she is an absolute fool. They're all fake liberals in Hollywood. Everyone knows that. It's all about the Benjamins. So... Here's a question. How rich is she getting exploiting all of this? That's the question I want to know. Because every time I turn around, someone's given mega millions to Black Lives Matter. She's like the Al Gore of the, the, the civil rights movement. Biden camp. Here's more creepy Uncle Joe. Biden camp apologizes to Muslim Democrats after condemning Linda Sarsour. This is from the New York Post. The Joe Biden campaign appears to be publicly condemning anti-Israel activists while privately pandering to them. I'm shocked. Team Biden went into damage control Sunday to shore up support with Muslim American Democrats after the campaign condemned controversial Palestinian-American activist Linda Sarsour and suggested she was an anti-Semite. And if you don't know what an anti-Semite is, it's just a Jew hater. It's a polite way of saying Jew hater. Top Biden aides made the mea culpa in a private phone call with dozens, (laughs) took dozens of them, Dozens of prominent Muslim and Arab surrogates, no doubt Jew haters, who had been angered by the campaign's attempt to distance itself from the anti-Israel activist Sarsour, according to a report by Middle East Eye. On a leaked audio call, Ashley Allison, National Coalition Director for the Biden campaign, said she understood the pain caused by the scathing statement Biden 2020 issued last week, which Sarsour said was disrespectful and hurtful. Oh, poor princess. Poor Jew-hating princess. She was disrespected and hurted. Oh. And this is from Ashley Allison. I am so sorry that happened. And I hope that whatever trust was broken, that this conversation is one small step to help build back the trust. But that is not the last time we had this conversation, Allison said, according to the report. 
Let me translate that for you. We're so sorry. We hate the Jews too, but we like their money. I, I, it's the enablement. The action, they enable this. The Democratic Party is unbelievable. This is a local story and a BLM story, white boy Malcolm X. You should be shot. Alleged threat in Rockport is the latest incident targeting Black Lives Matter. Other incidents involving racist taunts and defacing BLM signs have been springing up around greater Boston. Every Sunday for the past few weeks, Aiden McCarthy has stood at a main intersection in Rockport holding a Black Lives Matter sign for about an hour. While he's received some negative responses from passersby, people flipping the middle finger, shaking their head, someone shouting, All lives matter. Those racists. Seriously, the only thing worse you can say, which just goes to prove that you're in the KKK, is blue lives matter. If you say that, double racist. One response he received this past Sunday worried him enough to call the police and report it. You should be shot, you effing queers. A middle-aged man in a blue pickup truck, which paints a lovely picture of a redneck, shouted as he drove past, McCarthy said. That's the first time it's ever been, I felt like it was really bad, McCarthy told Boston.com. McCarthy did report the incident to police, Rockport police confirmed, but was only able to give the short description of a middle-aged man and a blue pickup truck. If you're a millennial, take out your damn phone and, and shoot the license plate for Christmas sake. For McCarthy, he feels it's important to bring awareness of BLM in a town like Rockport. It's predominantly white communities that need to be hearing this, he said, noting that if anything, the incident makes him feel emboldened to be out with his sign next weekend and into the future. However, he also recognizes that by being white, he may feel a level of confidence or comfort while holding a sign that comes with white privilege and that the experience for a person of color may be different. You know, they actually, they they protested in my Tony community here outside of Boston. And it was just a bunch of rich white people with their BLM signs. They were just like, virtue signaling to each other. So I guess that's what this clown is doing as well. I'm standing up. I'm so, I'm so brave. Whatever. Speaking of poor princess, Michelle Obama says, white America acts like black women don't exist. Oh, poor princess. Former First Lady Michelle Obama said on her podcast Thursday that white America acts like black women, including herself, don't exist. When I've been completely incognito during the eight years in the White House, walking the dogs on the canal, people would come up and pet my dogs, but will not look me in the eye. They don't know it's me, the former First Lady said in the Michelle Obama podcast. That's what she's pissed off about. Recognize me, I'm famous. What white folks don't understand, it's like that is so telling of how white America views people who are not like them. You know, we don't exist. And when we do exist, we exist as a threat. And that's, that's exhausting, Obama continued. What the white community doesn't understand about being a person of color in this nation is that there are daily slights, and a daily slight is called a microaggression, boys and girls, in our workplaces where, wait, she works? Now, Netflix, Netflix money, Michelle, does not count as working. You're just <coughs> producing, which doesn't really count. Picking back up, there are daily slights in our workplaces where people talk over you or people don't even see you, she said in the episode, which also featured pals Danielle Pemberton, Heard, Kelly Dibble, and Dr. Sharon Malone. And then she just goes on. I think she's just, she's just looking to be offended. Michelle, it's called confirmation bias, so... And she goes on this article, seriously, it talks about how she was out and she was trying to get ice cream and some, some white woman got in front of her. It was probably on Martha's Vineyard. And we, and we do have an, uh, our article on Karen. So that's coming up here shortly. But I think she, she kind of comes off to me as a racist. Can you here? I'm going to reverse this. What black folks don't understand is like that. It's so telling how black America views people who are not like them. You know, we don't exist. And when we do exist, we exist as a threat. And that's, that's exhausting, Obama continued, right? White people are considered a threat to black people because, like, let's face it, we're all racist, right, if you read White Fragility. So she comes off to me as a bit of a racist. Oh, and, and from such a woman of privilege as Michelle is, living out in her multi-million dollar house on Martha's Vineyard, complaining about white people don't look her in the eye. <sighs> you know, I do love me some good hyperbole, but unfortunately, this article is not it. 
Seattle Seahawks cancel practice. Yes, it's sports news, white boy Malcolm X. Seattle Seahawks cancel practice. Coach Pete Carroll, no more being quiet. Former Jets coach Pete Carroll, say that 15 times fast, now head coach for the Seattle Seahawks, got political on Saturday, delivering an impassioned plea against racism. Carroll, 68, called on other coaches to use their platforms to speak out against social justice and stressed the need to vote in November and for white people, who are all racists, to finally listen to the people of color around them. Can you, can, white boy Malcolm X, because you're fake black, can, can you explain to me what that means? I gotta listen, I don't know what that means. What, what am I listening for? That I'm, <laughs> that you're a racist? Yeah, yeah, I know that, I know, I know that already. This is about racism in America that white people don't know, the Super Bowl winning coach said during a nearly 15-minute monologue. They don't know enough, and they need to be coached up. Love that metaphor, bud. And they need to be educated about what the heck is going on in this world. Black people can't scream anymore, Carol went on. You think? Because all the shrill white people, they don't shut up long enough to let them. They can't march anymore. They can't bear their souls anymore to what they've lived for, with for hundreds of years. God, the guy's a drama queen. I'm done with that. I'm just not. Yeah, I'm just going to give you a trigger warning on this. God. This guy, he must masturbate to white fragility. So this is from Neil Broverman, the digital editor-in-chief of The Advocate. So here's the headline. Part of raising black children is prepping them for pain. My son can't play with toy guns. That was a rule from when he first joined my family as our foster child, and it wasn't in place just because my husband and I had loaded firearms pointed at our faces in two separate, equally harrowing encounters. The decision to not have blasters in the house is a necessity. My son is capital B black, and he could... (laughs) These folks with a capital B. And he could not be shot for holding one, especially by a police officer. The concern for his immediate safety wasn't originally a concern at all when it came to toy guns, at least for me, as a small white blonde obviously gay man. (laughs) And if you don't know what an obviously gay man is, I I call them lispy wispies. Who would be an obviously gay man, white boy Malcolm X? Who? (sighs) Ryan Ryan Seacrest. No, don't even go there. No, he is not. I mean, okay, we're just not going to touch that. As a small, white, blonde, obviously gay man, I'm rarely seen as a threat by anyone, including cops. It was my dark-skinned Latinx husband. And if you don't know what a Latinx is, this is how PC these folks are. Even though the guy said his son was black, not African-American. They're so PC, his husband is Latinx, which is a gender-neutral term for Latino or Latina. He's Latinx. It was my dark-skinned Latinx husband who initially worried that our toddler could be murdered for playing with plastic. (laughs) Like most people of color, my husband... I'm not laughing at the idea of a toddler being murdered. I'm laughing at these (laughs) these two drama queens. Oh, he can't play with the gun. The cops are going to burst in and shoot the poor little boy. Like most people of color, my husband has already experienced several frightening confrontations with the police. I, on the other hand, glided by on privilege for years, mouthing off to an officer after playing slots while underage, ultimately kicked out of the casino, not arrested, and let off the hook twice after being pulled over for a broken turn signal or forgetting to turn on my headlights. The brainwashing that led me to believe all police officers are harmless was sloughed off about a decade ago when the media finally covered the killing of black children by cops and security guards. But I didn't really get it. The fear, the danger, the harassment experienced by capital B black people encountering the police until my husband said our baby boy at four years old has a target on his back that will only get bigger as he does. Well, I I mean, who can disagree with the fact? I mean, let's face it. The piggish racist cops love shooting black toddlers, the racist scum. So like I said, this guy must masturbate to to white fragility. White boy Malcolm X... (laughs) Can you see this guy with his Latinx husband and his black kid in about 10 years? I'm so sorry that I'm white. <laughs> I'm sorry. Another damn drama. I, I got to change the topic completely. I can't take this anymore. Kim Yo Jong could even be worse for North Korea than Kim Jong Un, experts say. And if you remember last week's podcast, 
Kim Jong-un, the current dictator of North Korea, is the guy opening the Golden Retriever cafes all over the country. North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un's sister could be the hermit kingdom's most brutal leader if she succeeds him, experts told the Post on Monday. Kim Yo-jong, 32, appeared poised to take the reins of power amid a claim that her older brother has been in a coma for months and his recent public appearances have been staged. She's, a, she's another one, if you've seen her Look at this picture, seriously. She's another one that looks like someone peed in her cornflakes. I haven't seen any evidence, any indication of how she might rule, but my speculation, given the reputation and history of the family, is that she would rule with an iron fist, retired U.S. Army Colonel David Maxwell said. Like the others are big softies. Jeez. I mean, she is so mean. You know, if she were white, she could she could lead Black Lives Matter rallies. That's how mean she looks. Okay, I'm just, I'm done with that. There, let's go back to, oh, this is the one I want to do. The Mythology of Karen. And this is an Atlantic article. And it's super, super, super long, so I'm not going to read it all. But I'm just going to read, I'm going to delve into a little bit because I promised this last, last week. The mythology of Karen. The meme is so powerful because of the awkward status of white women. What does it mean to call a woman a Karen? The origins of any meme are hard to pin down, and this one has spread with the same intensity as the coronavirus, and often in parallel with it. Karens are the police women of all human behavior. Karens don't believe in vaccines. Karens have short hair. Karens are selfish. Confusingly, Karens are both the kind of petty enforcers who patrol other people's failures at social distancing and the kind of entitled women who refuse to wear a mask because it's a muzzle. Oh, and Karens are most definitely white. Let that ease your conscience if you are beginning to wonder whether the meme was, perhaps, a little bit sexist in identifying various universal negative behaviors and attributing them exclusively to women. Because Karen is white, she faces few meaningful repercussions, wrote Robin Epkarian in the Los Angeles Times. Embarrassing videos posted to, on social media is usually as bad as it gets for Karen, which is kind of not true. If you look at, I mean, there was the, the Central Park Karen, the woman who the, the black guy asked her to, to put her dog on a leash and she went kind of berserk. I mean, that woman, she lost her job. I mean, first, she was socially humiliated. Then she lost her job. And now I think the city of New York is trying to criminally prosecute her for being kind of a Karen. Sorry, but no. You can't control a word or an idea once it's been released into the wild. Epitaphs linked to women have a habit of becoming sexist insults. We don't tend to describe men as bossy, ditzy, or nasty. They're not called mean girls or prima donnas or drama queens, even when they totally are. I mean, with men, it's pretty simple. They're just assholes. I mean, a man, if he's being bossy or he's being nasty or he's being a mean girl, you just call him an asshole. I actually once, I described a female coworker as an asshole because I knew they were thinking I was going to say something sexist. I said, she's just, she's being an asshole. So I got away with it. But yeah, I mean, I can see that. Men are just assholes. They can be bossy or ditzy or nasty or whatever, but they're just assholes. They just don't, you know, break it down like they do with women. And so Karen has followed the trajectory of dozens of words before it, becoming a cloak for casual sexism, as well as a method of criticizing the perceived faux vulnerability of white women. To understand why the Karen debate has been so fierce and emotive, you need to understand the two separate and opposing traditions on which it draws, anti-racism and sexism. You also need to understand the challenge that white women as a group pose to modern activist culture, when so many online debates involve mentally awarding privilege points to each side of an encounter or argument to adjudicate who holds the most power, God, they really do that, don't they? The confusing status of white women jams the signal. Are they the oppressors or the oppressed? Worse than that, what if they are using their apparent disadvantage, being a woman, as a weapon? No. <laughs> no woman would ever do that, would they? One phrase above all has come to encapsulate the essence of a Karen. She is the kind of woman who asks to speak to the manager. In doing so, Karen is causing trouble for others. It is taken as read that her complaint is bogus or at least disproportionate to the, finally, a good use of the word disproportionate, or at least disproportionate to the vigor with which she pursues it. The target of Karen's entitled anger is typically presumed to be a racial minority or working class person, and so she is executing a covert maneuver. 
using her white femininity to present herself as a victim when she was really the aggressor. Do you want me to continue with this white boy, Macamax? Okay, I'll go on for a couple more pairs. I'm not reading the whole thing, folks. Don't worry. The best way to see the Karen meme is as a scissor, an idea popularized by the writer Scott Alexander of Slate Star Codex to describe an incident or statement that drives people to such wildly divergent interpretations that they can never be reconciled. Because white women can be both oppressors and oppressed, Karen is a scissor. Does the word describe a particular type of behavior that resonates because of a particular racial history of the United States? Yes. Is that the only way it is used? No. As it happens, the casually sexist roots of the meme are as deep as the anti-racist ones. One of the foundational internet Karens was the ex-wife of a Redditor who chronicled their fraught relationship in the subreddit F.U. Karen created in December 2017. The intensity of the blowback when pointing facts like this out is itself instructive. The chorus of disdain that greets any white woman who questions the Karen meme comes from a broad and unexpected coalition, anti-racist and bog-standard misogynist. I don't know what a bog-standard misogynist is. For the same reason, the Karen meme divides white women themselves. On one side are those who register its sexist uses, who feel the familiar tang of misogyny. Women are too loud, too demanding, too entitled. Others push aside those echoes, reasoning that if black women want a word to describe their experience of racism, they should be allowed to have it. Hanging over white women's decision on which way to jump is a classic finger trap, familiar to anyone who has confronted a sexist joke, only to be told that they don't have a sense of humor. What is more Karen than complaining about being called Karen? There is a strong incentive to be cool about other women being Karen, lest you be Karen yourself. Okay, I'm not reading anymore. Thanks, Karen. So we're done with that one. Okay, this story, White Boy Malcolm X, I think this SOB is trying to steal my title as America's most beloved self-loathing homosexual. Richard Grinnell, first openly gay cabinet member, says Trump rejects identity politics. Former acting director of national intelligence Richard Grinnell says President Trump's decision to include him in his cabinet had nothing to do with his sexuality or identity politics. Speaking to Breitbart News on Saturday, Grinnell, the first openly gay U.S. cabinet member, said Trump doesn't care about these types of issues when considering whom to appoint for a position. Grinnell, who served as U.S. ambassador to Germany and recently joined the Republican National Committee to handle LGBT outreach, this guy is definitely self-loathing, said the commander-in-chief focuses on who is best qualified for the job. President Trump, I know him well. He doesn't care about these types of issues. They're irrelevant characterizations about someone. What is relevant is whether or not they can do the job, he told the outlet. The Trump ally went on to tell a story about a recent exchange he had about his LGBT colleagues in the Trump administration. You know, somebody recently asked me how many gays and lesbians work in the Trump administration. I had to answer, I have no idea. I really don't know. This person said to me, well, there you go. That's the reason, because we had 2,410 in the Obama administration, the Obama-Biden administration. I said, I'd be pretty offended that I was on a list that says, here's our gay and lesbian list, Grinnell said. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, I like this guy. Can you imagine? And you know, counting the 2,410 gay people in the Obama administration was some bitchy gay man with a clipboard. saying, like, which are you? Which are you? Okay, I'm going to put you to one, one for lesbian. Okay, I'm good. Sashaying over to the next one. Who are you? Okay, you're transgender. Okay, I'll put you down for that. So, no. Richard, let me just tell you something. If if you try to take my title, I will, <laughs> I will cut you. It's my title. I'm not giving it up. Oh God. You know this. <laughs> this story can go bad six ways to Sunday, but I'm going to do it anyway because I am who I am. Another epidemic of inequalities: HIV among young black men. Healthcare disparities affecting the black community, including among black LGBTQ plus people, must be addressed. This is another advocate article by Lala Tanmoy Das and Douglas Krakauer. COVID-19 has disproportionately affected black. We know that because every week there's another story using the word disproportionately to tell us about how COVID-19 is racist. And apparently now with this article... HIV is racist too. But let's dig in. 
COVID-19 has disproportionately affected black adults, laying bare how racism in healthcare and society has left black... These people are mentally unhinged to write this crap. Laying bare how racism in healthcare and society have left black people's vulnerable to health disparities. Unfortunately, younger black populations endure other glaring health inequalities. A recent study found that black children are three times more likely to die within a month of surgery as white children. Surgeons are also racist. And for years, black youth have silently shouldered an unequal burden of another widespread and insidious infection, HIV. Latest data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention show that black youth have more than three times the number of new HIV diagnoses than white youth. What did I just say? HIV is racist. While the incidence of HIV nationally has trended downward over the past decade, new infections have risen by over 40% among some black populations. One in five of all new HIV infections occur among adolescents and young adults aged 13 to 24 years, with the largest share among black men who have sex with men. These inequities persist because black youth are less likely to get tested for HIV and be aware of their infection status. Those who test positive are less likely to engage in medical care, start treatment, and achieve undetectable levels of HIV in their blood, which eliminates infectiousness to sexual partners. While it is easy to blame this snapshot of inequality on individual choices, we wouldn't want to do that, would we? Anti-black racism, which fuels unequal access to employment, health insurance, and medical care is the most significant driver of these disparities. And we are checking off the profanity filter, are we not? Good. This is bullshit. <laughs> Absolutely bullshit on 50 different levels, but I'm going to only tackle a couple of them. This is just very simple. Sexual transmission of HIV. Is, this is a very simple thing to cure. Don't put your pecker where it, it shouldn't be, folks. That's, that, that's very simple. You know, I might be America's most beloved self-loathing homosexual, but I am also 50 years old. I am almost 51, by the way. You know, I lived through this when this was a death sentence. You know, this is just one of these things. Like I said, these people are mentally unhinged to blame racism on, on, on higher HIV infection rates. I remember, I think it was when I moved back to Atlanta. This was probably 2014. I got into a, a bit of a disagreement <laughs> with one of these dopey millennials at a bar and I was a little inebriated at the... You were not there, White Boy Malcolm X. I was a little inebriated at the time. We got talking about HIV infection rates. And I said, I don't understand what we went through for 20-something years with the HIV education and condoms and, and all these stuff to try to stop these infection rates. And they're just going through the roof with the younger generation. And the reason is because, like I said earlier, when... I was coming out and I was of age and I was in my early 20s. It was a death sentence. You would die from this for the most part. And then that's when the, the new co drug cocktails started coming out. And so now HIV isn't isn't a death sentence anymore. It's just a pain in the butt because you got to take a pill once a day. So that's what you look at it. If you want to look at why there's so much risky behavior, because what's the downside? It's not death anymore. It's, oh, I got to take this pill. <sighs> Anything to blame, poor outcomes on anyone but the person who's responsible. So it's 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 racism's fault in this case that, that these young black and Latino kids, these minority kids are catching HIV. No, don't put your pecker where it doesn't belong. And if you do, put a damn condom on it. Jeez. Oh, here's another story that's going to get me in trouble. And this is from Variety. J.K. Rowling returns Kennedy Family Award after Carrie Kennedy remarks. Another loser Kennedy. We're gonna get to, we're gonna have two loser Kennedys today. I looked at her. She looks obnoxious. I mean, there's this kind of preening prissiness about this woman. But Harry Potter author J.K. Rowling has emerged into a fresh controversy after she returned the Ripple of Hope Award. That's a crappy name for an award bestowed upon her by the Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights Organization in December 2019, following criticism from preening obnoxious looking Carrie Kennedy. Carrie is the daughter of Robert F. Kennedy and the president of the organization. Well, she, that's a Kennedy with a job. Over the course of June 2020, LGBTQ Pride Month, and much to my dismay, J.K. Rowling posted deeply troubling transphobic tweets and statements Carrie posted on the organization's website on August 3rd. On June 6th, she tweeted an article headlined, 
opinion, creating a more equal post-COVID-19 world for people who menstruate, she wrote glibly and dismissively about transgender identity. Kennedy said she had spoken with Rowling to express my profound disappointment that she has chosen to use her remarkable gifts to create a narrative that <gasps> diminishes the identity of trans and non-binary people, undermining the validity and integrity of the entire transgender community. And here we go, folks, because she couldn't leave this out. One that disproportionately suffers from violence, discrimination, harassment, and exclusion, and as a result, experiences high rates of suicide, suicide attempts, homelessness, and mental and bodily harm. Black trans women and trans youth in particular are targeted. I hope that J.K. Rowling told Carrie Kennedy, that preening obnoxious <laughs> Kennedy, I hope she told her to take her fake award and shove it up her ass. Carrie, dear, you're not that special. You might be a Kennedy earning a paycheck, but face it, dear, you're not that special. And and can I say this? And I want to address the, the transgender community. From one, and now I know I am America's most beloved self-loathing homosexual, but from one LGBTQ plus member to another, and I'm the G and you're the T, <laughs> if you don't know, please just, you know, stop it with the vicious attacks already. Come on, you guys are, and gals are coming off like a pack of bullies and assholes. Just because, look, I don't always agree with people. I don't go after them as viciously as you folks do. So just lay off it. Okay, speaking of stupid Kennedys, Ginger Kennedy's campaign. This is my only Ginger Kennedy story. So I promise I'm like, a, like last week, three of them. God, I almost threw up. Ginger Kennedy's campaign wants Tweedledum Markey to do more about the toxic behavior of some of his supporters. Markey's campaign says the complaints are nothing but crocodile tears. Representative Ginger Kennedy says that he has repeatedly received personal threats during his Senate primary campaign against Tweedledum Markey. And while Kennedy and Markey have themselves agreed that vitriolic attacks have no place even in an increasingly contentious, inordinately online race, the Massachusetts congressman's campaign wants the incumbent senator to do more about it. In an email Monday morning to Markey campaign manager John Walsh, Kennedy campaign manager Nick Clemens called for a personal and public statement from Tweedledum Markey himself, instructing his followers to immediately end the attacks on Ginger supporters, the threats to Ginger and his family's life, and the destruction of Kennedy for Massachusetts campaign materials and property. At the end of the day, the buck stops with a candidate and his or her campaign, Clemens wrote to his fellow campaign veteran. Another bunch of more drama queens here. One more paragraph. With just over a week left in the race, the Kennedy campaign, you know, do you know White Boy Michael Max? Ginger's going to lose. <laughs> Poor Ginger is it, the, the poll show that this guy, 74-year-old, is going to just stomp him. But, oh well. With just over a week left in the race, the Kennedy campaign has increasingly amplified complaints about a pattern of toxic behavior and cyberbullying in the Markyverse. The zealous band of Twitter users supporting the 74-year-old Malden native whose re-election campaign has won over the support of the online left. I'm done. Okay, here we go. More. <laughs> oh my God, more drama queens. Now remember, last week's headline was Crypt Keeper Angers Ditsy Bartender by Endorsing Ginger. And this is, I'm not even going to read this article, but this is about how the Ditsy Bartender... AOC is now backing because the Crypt Keeper pissed her off by endorsing the ginger. So AOC wants to piss Pelosi off, or the Crypt Keeper, however you want to call her. And she endorsed the alleged chicken hawk, Alex Morse, who is the mayor of Holyoke, Massachusetts, which, by the way, is a delightful little town. So AOC is endorsing the chicken hawk. Here you go, white boy Malcolm X. This, I pulled this one just for you. Anthony Porosky says he ate the best lobster roll of his life in Maine. The queer eyes star also hung out with Martha Stewart this week. And this is another Boston.com story. It's not every day that a celebrity eats at your restaurant, let alone a food and wine expert on a hit show. So when Anthony Porosky from Netflix's Queer Eye ate a lobster, White Boy Malcolm X, have you have you seen, just let me, a uh, quick aside, have you seen Netflix's Queer Eye or, or are you still watching, uh, what's his name's dad bod? Oh, oh, speaking of which, you know, 
I was on, I'm watching uh, Umbrella Academy season two. I'm, I think I'm on like a six, six episode or something, which is actually, it's good. It's, it's finally starting to pick up here. And it's, ironically enough, it's placed in like the early 60s. So it really kind of shows a lot of the kind of the, the, the birth of the civil rights movement and, you know, the counter strikes uh, in Dallas before President Kennedy gets there. But Netflix is now recommending to me the Dad Bod Show. And so, no, no, uh-uh. I did not watch it. I did click on it, though, which is the curse. It's like uh, Amazon Prime. You click on a game movie. That's all they re- want to recommend to you. But there's only like eight episodes in that thing. And no, I didn't watch it. I didn't even watch the trailer. So are you like watching it over and over again? Or are you just like slow walking this as much as you can? So, okay, the middle finger. Let's Let's go back to this. So when Anthony Porosky from Netflix's Queer Eye ate a lobster roll at the Clam Shack in Kennebunk, Maine on Wednesday and called it the best lobster roll he's ever had, the restaurant called to visit one for the Clam Shack books. Porosky is vacationing in Maine where the Maine Lobster Marketing Collaborative led him to visit the Clam Shack and haul traps aboard the lobster <laughs> doorboat for goods. Can you see this queen <laughs> On a on a lobster boat hauling, oh my nail, my nails are horrible. Oh God, uh, Porosky also spent time with Martha Stewart, who has a vacation home along the coast. Porosky posted on Instagram about the lobster roll, the clam shack, best lob roll I've ever had. Okay, I'm done. I'm not bless the bless his heart, bless all their hearts. Oh, I got a ton of millennial news. Let's just jump into the millennial news. Harpoon Brewery and Duncan. Team up to brew donut-infested beers. <sighs> oh, that sounds disgusting. Last week, Duncan declared it was ready for fall with the introduction of its new fall menu, a pumpkin-infused lineup that includes pumpkin spice lattes and maple sugar seasoned snack and bacon. Next up, a new collaboration with Harpoon Brewery featuring three new beers. And yes, donuts were involved in the brewing process. In early September, Harpoon and Duncan will release their latest collection for fall, the Harpoon Duncan Pumpkin, <laughs> the donut-infused Harpoon Duncan Jelly Donut IPA, and the Harpoon Duncan Boston Cream Stout. The three newcomers join Harpoon and Duncan's previous collaboration, Harpoon Duncan Coffee Porter, which was released in October 2018. Brewed with real pumpkin, pumpkin pie spices, and coffee, Pumpkin caters to die-hard pumpkin fans, though a hint of espresso roast has also made its way into the spiced latte ale. At 5.2% ABV, the beer will be available on draft at Harpoon Brewery and in bottled six-packs, as well as in the new Harpoon Dunkin' Dozen Mixed Pack, which includes three cans of each seasonal beer. You know, I used to actually like Dunkin' Donuts, and I still do from time to time, but they're trying too hard, I think, to become Starbucks. You know, I could used to be able to go into a Dunkin' Donuts and like, I, I want my, my medium black coffee um, in and out of there in like under a minute. And now the millennials are flocking there because they're doing this kind of crap. Let me give you a little bit of a hint for every millennial in line in front of you. It adds at least one minute <laughs> to your life in waiting in line. It's like, I want like a, a venti soy latte. And they've got like five specialty adjustments to it. They all just suck up time because they are the center of the universe. Oh, God, here we go again. Young people don't trust anyone who uses this punctuation mark. Periods may be coming to a full stop. While older texters may consider the period an innocent symbol that a sentence has ended, digital natives, that's millennials and and the other ones, the Gen Z folk, consider it a triggering form of microaggression. And you know what? I honest to God, I can see these hysterical little me. There's a period. There's a period. The punctuation problem ignited over social media recently with Gen Z and millennials agreeing that ending a sentence with a period is overly hostile and worse yet, extremely uncool. Only old people or troubled souls put periods at the end of every sentence, wrote digital culture journalist Victoria Turk in her book on digital etiquette, kill reply all the younger generations consider the act of sending a text a sufficient signifier of a complete thought as if anyone in this younger generation has ever actually had a complete thought turk wrote making periods feel unnecessary and overly final the thing is in a messaging conversation a period is simply not necessary she explained it's clear when you finished your thought already so what function does the period fulfill as a result Using a period and messaging now looks rather emphatic 
and can come across as if you're quite cross or annoyed. Although the tweet was met with cries of ageism, her argument has a point. In a 2015 study of 126 dopey undergraduates, researchers at Binghamton University found that the texts containing periods were also perceived as insincere. Texting is lacking many of the social cues used in actual face-to-face conversations. When speaking, people easily convey social and emotional information with eye gaze, facial expressions, tone of voice, pauses, and so on, said lead researcher Celia Klin in a statement at the time the study was released. People obviously can't use these mechanisms when they are texting. Thus, it makes sense that texters rely on what they have available to them. Emoticons, deliberate misspellings that mimic speech sounds, and, according to our data, punctuation. Folks, sometimes a period is just a period. And no, white boy mouth, that is not a microaggression. I am not talking about J.K. Rowling. Uh, We're almost done. We have three more stories. California Ski Resort changing name, citing offensive word. California's popular Squaw Valley Ski Resort will change its name because the word squaw is a derogatory term for Native American women, officials announced Tuesday. The decision was made after consulting with local Native American groups and extensive research in the etymology and history of the term squaw, says Ron Cohen, president and CEO of Squaw Valley Alpine Meadows. The word squaw, derived from the Algonquin language, may have once simply meant woman, but over generations, the word morphed into a misogynist and racist term to disparage indigenous women. While we love our local history and the memories we all associate with this place that has been named for so long, we are confronted with the overwhelming evidence that the term squaw is considered offensive, Cohen said. Work to find a new name will start immediately and is expected to be announced next year, he said. Well, I have a suggestion. (laughs) Yeah, because I just can't wait to see what they're going to come up with. I would just call it Ski Resort. Just Ski Resort. It's just the Ski Resort. Like the Dixie Chicks. They're just the Chicks now. (laughs) So they're just going to call themselves Ski Resort. Mother, 64, and son, 43, charged with incest. Cops. Relative discovered pair in the act on living room couch. Here's one way to pass the time while in family quarantine. A 64-year-old woman and her 43-year-old son are facing criminal charges after they were allegedly having sex on the couch in their Massachusetts home, according to a police report. Yes, it's a local story, White Boy Malcolm X. Cheryl Lavoy and her son Tony have been charged with incest in connection with a late-night encounter in May inside a residence in Fitchburg, a city 40 miles from Boston. Fitchburg is a dump. And if you think that, what is it, Holyoke is a lovely little town, this is a double lovely little town. I wonder if they have a gay mayor who uh, who looks for, for young college boys on, on apps. During an arraignment Thursday, both Lavoie's pleaded not guilty to the felony count. A district court judge who ordered the pair to have no contact with each other, have set a pretrial hearing for October 27. As first reported by the Sentinel and Enterprise, Tony LaFoy's wife, whoa, told police that she walked in on her husband having sex with his mother on the living room couch. The woman said that both LaFoy's were naked and that Cheryl was atop her son. Hmm. During police questioning, the LaFoy's reportedly admitted to the consensual sexual encounter with both claiming it was their first time together. I don't want to talk about it. I made a mistake and I'm embarrassed enough as it is, Tony LaVoy told police. Yes, we did have sex. It just happened. (laughs) My penis just fell into her vagina. When asked how it just happened, LaVoy said he was playing a video game in the living room. Of course he was. When he and his mother just started to kiss and have sex. Does his mother know Becky Falwell? (laughs) Man, no, he's too old for he's too old for that. Cheryl Lavoy told cops that I was on top of my son on the couch when they were caught by Tony's wife. Cheryl explained that myself and my son have gotten a lot closer. Yes, you have over the last few months, and we just had sex after we were kissing. Come give mommy a kiss. You know, God, do you know they? This is listen to this. The Lavoys, each of whom is free on a personal reconnaissance bond, face a maximum of 20 years in jail if convicted of incest. You don't get that for murder or looting these days, but you get it for banging your son. 
Final story. Cops. Woman beat father over his flatulence. Victim, 59, punched in the face numerous times. A Florida woman was arrested yesterday for allegedly battering her father due to his flatulence inside their residence, police say. According to an arrest affidavit, Nicole DeZoy, 40, shares a bedroom with the 59-year-old woman in a home in Largo, a city in the Tampa Bay area. Are they having sex, too? What do you think, Wayboy Malcolm X? I mean, I'm sure in Florida it's perfectly legal to have sex with your, your parent, but I wonder if those two in the same bedroom are, are doing the nasty as well. Around 2 a.m. Sunday, DeZoy became angry with her father due to his flatulence and an argument ensued. DeZoy then allegedly attacked her father, punching him in the face numerous times. Upon responding to the residents, cops noted that the victim had a bloody left eye and scratches all over his neck as a result of the attack. And I got nothing else to say, so I think we are just going to end right there. Folks, thank you so much for joining us yet again. I hope you had as much fun as we have. Have a great start to your week, and we'll... Are we coming back? Are we doing a podcast over the holiday weekend? Yeah, well, we'll see. We'll see. Hopefully we'll be back next week, if not definitely the week after. So have a wonderful start to your week, and we will see you soon. (laughs) 